Welcome to the World War I History Podcast, produced by the MacArthur Memorial. We invite you to follow us on Twitter at MacArthur1880 or find the General Douglas MacArthur Memorial on Facebook. This podcast was sponsored by the Ernst and Gertrude Tico Charitable Foundation. Today we're sitting down with Dr. Frank Blazich, lead curator at the National Museum of American History in Washington, D.C., and we're going to be talking about the U.S. Army Signal Corps Pigeon Service. Now, when the United States entered World War I in 1917, the U.S. Army Signal Corps had a very sophisticated communications technology and a lot of expertise in that area. Dr. Blazich, can you tell us about the battlefield communication systems that the U.S. Army used at that time? Absolutely. In 1914, when the Army updated its field service regulations, uh, it decided to pair one radio company with a wire company, creating a field signal battalion. And so one of these field signal battalions was assigned to every inf- what we now call infantry division. America really had this global lead in telephone technology, all thanks to the Bell system, Bell Telephone. And we ended up recruiting heavily from Bell Telephone, and we had 12 telegraph battalions fighting overseas in France. The thing that America had that was so powerful was what was called the multiplex communication line. So think of this as a single line that can transmit not just voice traffic, telephone traffic, but also telegraph traffic. So you get two means of communication on the same wire. And we're able, we are going to be able to install about, goodness, uh, over 20, about 23,000 miles of wire, of communication wire during the war. And if we include the least French communication lines, the whole network was over 38,000 miles. And so where is all the wire going? You, of course, have the forces all the way up in the trenches at the front. They're going to have telephone lines, so hard wires that go back to the division or regimental or battalion command posts in the rear echelon. And then you'll have lines running between the battalions uh, for the artillery Forces, the artillery batteries located further behind the trenches, those are going to be connected by telephone lines. One asked, well, what about radio, Frank? Didn't we have radio? America, again, has some advances in radio technology, but radios of the air are very fragile. They're very heavy. They're not really trench-proof or soldier-proof, and they have a limited range, uh, only about, uh, for a field telephone, which is wired, you have 15, 25 miles. Field telegraph, hundreds of miles. Radio could be hundreds of miles, if it works. And that's one of the bigger problems is we're not always able to use wireless tech at the era. Most of what we're using is wired communication to communicate between the forces at the front and the forces in the rear, as well as the services of supply. I imagine things with wires that depend on wires have some major weaknesses on the World War I battlefield. Absolutely. What are some of the issues with those? So World War I, there's an expression that artillery is the king of battle, or some might call it the god of battle. And World War I, the vast majority of casualties, wounds and death, are inflicted by artillery, uh, by direct explosion, particularly by shrapnel, so bits of metal flying at very high velocity, uh, which has a nasty habit of cutting and tearing up whatever it hits. And wires are part of that. So you're going to have a lot of wires cut by artillery explosions, high explosives. You'll have wires simply cut because people run over them with vehicles. So they'll be cut by people running over them. It might be a single soldier with a pair of wire cutters cutting the communication cables. That was a problem. And this may sound crazy to listeners, but insulation technology to insulate a wire uh, from environmental conditions, particularly water or rain, was also not always fully developed. And so rain in some cases, or constant exposure to mud, would actually cause communication cables to fail. 
And so as a result, you'll see a lot of the wire technologies sometimes failing at inopportune times in battle. So thinking about an alternative communication system, um, how did the signal core settle on homing pigeons? So the homing pigeon story from a military perspective actually goes back to the Siege of Paris between 1870 and 1871. The French are going to use balloons to move the number I found was 363 pigeons out of Paris, and only 57 of these happen to actually fly back home back to Paris. But what the French have also figured out is a type of early microphotography. Uh, so you're, they're able to photograph lots of messages and shrink them down almost like to microfilm. So the pigeon, you only have 57 pigeons, but these will move over a million private and state dispatches during this time. And so a lot of world militaries are going, whoa, you know, the pigeon, this simple little bird actually can be a valuable source of communication uh, when we're either cut off in the case of a siege or if we just need to communicate over distances. And every major European power is going to then develop some sort of military pigeon service, except for Great Britain. Really? Interesting enough, the British don't. So that asks the question, well, wait a minute, Britain's an American ally, France is as well. How come America begins using pigeons? So at the onset of World War I, there's a gentleman, Alfred H. Osman, O-S-M-A-N. And Osman's kind of like Mr. Pigeon in England in terms of the racing pigeon community and the pigeon fancier community. And he'll develop something called the Voluntary Pigeon War Committee. And they'll first work with essentially the Royal Navy and the British Merchant Marine, and later the Army, the British Army, approaches them. And they're approaching them in turn because of what they've learned from the French allies, particularly at the Siege of Verdun and the bloodbath that is Verdun. The French are using pigeons to great effect. Coming back to the artillery, they're having men cut off by artillery barrages, but they find that the pigeons are able to get small messages back and forth. It's either to say, here's where the advance is, here's where our forces are, or their messages requesting artillery support, saying, okay, fire on this position, fire here, to help us move forward. The French find it's a very effective system. The British will then adopt something similar, and they use it to great effect at the Battle of the Somme, which goes on for many, many months in 1916. So what about the U.S. Army? Where do they figure in? We had played and toyed around with pigeons. Uh, in 1878, a dozen of them actually went out west and were used out west to kind of communicate between various forts. It was really experimental. There was some optimism, but it just never caught on. And so the pigeons flew the coop, bad joke, <laughs> and the Army lost interest. The Navy said, ooh, pigeons can be really helpful for us to communicate from ship to shore. But just when they're beginning to bring in pigeons, radios developed. And so the pigeons begin to lose, really lose their focus compared to radio communications. When America enters World War I, what we're going to discover is, by talking to the British and French, hey guys, it's great you have such amazing telephone technology, it's great you have this radio communication, it's not going to work when artillery begins falling. You're going to be cut off. You can't always take a human runner and say, hey, take this note and bring it to Colonel or General so-and-so, because they might get killed too, or captured. But try using pigeons, they're really effective. Uh, the Signal Corps staff hears this. They mention it to General Pershing. General Pershing says, I love the idea. Let's do something about it. In 1917, the British are using them. The French are using them. The Americans are figuring out how to use them. Germans using them, too? Yes. Okay, so everybody Everybody's got pigeons. Them. Everyone loves okay. pigeons. Now, tell us about the pigeons themselves. What makes them great little couriers? Uh, are they, is it a specific type of bird? How do they find their way from one place to another? So homing pigeons are relatives of the rock dove, scientific name 
I'm probably butchering the pronunciation for those listening, uh, Columba Livia, so C-O-L-U-M-B-A space L-I-V-I-A. But I said they're relatives, so Columbia Livia, you'll see them anywhere outside. If you see pigeons flying around, those are rock doves. Homing pigeons are kind of like racehorses. They've been specifically bred for speed. They've been bred for endurance, and they've been bred for their homing ability. Well, what's the homing ability? It's the kind of follow-on question of that. We really don't know the exact reasons why pigeons are able to home and be be released in some random location and yet find their way back to their nest over hundreds. It could be a thousand miles. We simply don't know. Some people think it's there's a visual capability, so it's the pigeon's eyesight. Some people think it's something called magnetoreception, where pigeons literally can kind of see the Earth's magnetic fields and wow. navigate that way. Some people think it's olfactory. Pigeons can smell their way home. Maybe it's a combination of all of them. We simply don't know. We do know pigeons can navigate by landmarks, and they've actually put little GPS trackers on pigeons, and they'll fly along roadways or railways. So they actually know, okay, go down this street for so long, turn at that house, and that gets you home. So we we have seen this. But quite frankly, we didn't know then, and we're not fully sure now, but what we do know is it works. And the, the, the way, there's two real ways you train that a homing pigeon for the military purpose and to some extent today, and that's the home, and we say a pigeon home, is it's their home loft. And there's two things that you can train a pigeon to always return to, food and companionship or their mate. So if you take a pigeon, if you deny a pigeon its food source or deny it its mate, the pigeon has a strong sense of loyalty and wants to return, return home to be reunited with its mate or basically have a hearty meal. And so those are, so food and sex to be crude are the two things you use to train a homing pigeon. And this is, these techniques have been used for centuries, and arguably millennia, and are still effective today. The big difference between a pigeon of World War I and a pigeon of today, the distance and the speed. Uh, the pigeons today can home over greater distances, and a good racing homing pigeon can fly from 60 to up to 100 miles an hour. They literally can have burst speeds of up to 100 miles an hour. And you're not going to be able to intercept that. Uh, drones won't be able to necessarily intercept and track a pigeon. Really, the only thing that can are falcons and peregrine falcons and, and, and raptors in that sense, the natural, natural uh, predator, predator of the pigeon, are right. some of the only means to take down a pigeon. Can you outline the creation of the pigeon service for the American Expeditionary Force? Sure. So I sort of left off earlier. I said General Pershing decided we need these we need this pigeon capability let's do it that's in july 1917 so he's going to order major general george squire who is the army's chief signal officer in washington to commission two pigeon specialists as first lieutenants and find 12 enlisted pigeon experts and ship these guys over to france to set up a pigeon service and the two men commissioned you couldn't have found better people the first one is uh, david c buskell it's a b-u-s-c-a-l-l He's English-born, and at the time, he was a quartermaster sergeant in the Marine Corps at the Marine Barracks here in Washington. The other fellow is uh, John L. Carney of Pittsburgh, and he was actually a Signal Corps veteran, and he had served in the Spanish-American War. He also, I think, served in the Boxer Rebellion. He had service in the Philippines and Puerto Rico. So two men with military experience who are also really experts in racing pigeons, and they're two of the founding members of what's known as the American Racing Pigeon Union, the AU, as they refer to themselves, which is really the nation's premier pigeon racing organization. And they, that begins in 1910. Buskell and Carney are key players in that. So what's important is men with military experience, 
who also have pigeon experience and know the civilian pigeon community. So they're the best positioned people to find those enlisted pigeon experts and bring them into the Army, as well as acquire the equipment and the birds they need to be successful. So with that being said, uh, they kind of divide the responsibilities. In September and October of 1917, Buskell's going to work on a lot of the equipment. Uh, he's going to develop what are called mobile lofts, and I can talk about those later, and also the feed and some of the other equipment they're going to need to care for the pigeons overseas. Carney's going to run around the East Coast acquiring pigeons, and he's buying them at about, I think I've seen quoted, $30 a pair for some of the birds. The Army later pays about $2 a piece for pigeons. Uh, some civilians donate the pigeons to the war effort, and so they'll basically build up a supply of around, and here's where the numbers get squiffy. You find them going back and forth. Some people say 2,500 pigeons. Some say 3,000. I say 2,600 just because I have exact numbers in that case. But in late October of 17, Buskell and six enlisted men ship out to France with the first 800 pigeons. Carney, along with the other six uh, non-commissioned officers, will head over in December. They arrive first in Paris, and that's where the, the American pigeons will be housed. And Buskell and Carney basically go and visit the French and visit the British Army in the field, in the trenches, and see how are they using pigeons. At the end of the month, Buskell's going to sit down with uh, his boss, who's Colonel Edgar Russell, who's Pershing's chief signalman, and kind of map out this American pigeon effort. And we decide to set up our base at a place called Fort de la Bonnelle in Langres, France, and we're going to build a breeding base uh, for young recruits, if you will, and also organize our training there and organize all the pigeon efforts. So throughout January and March of 18, this breeding base takes form. People are saying, well, Frank, you just collected all these pigeons. Why do you need more pigeons? The best, kind of like racehorses, your best racing pigeons are going to be younger. Younger, stronger, healthier birds. Plus, if you can get them really young, you can train them kind of from the onset for the military service and improve their homing abilities. So we build, we, we build this large facility there at Fort De La Bonnell that's It's 15 buildings. Each of them are 20 by 50 feet. They house 96 breeding pairs of pigeons. Carney will be put in charge of breeding operations, and by 1918, we actually raised 4,422 pigeons. So no one can fault the, uh, the fecundity of American pigeons and serving the war. So now they've got this uh, base where they're breeding the pigeons. How are the birds distributed, then cared for in the field, and then used to actually transmit messages? This is where some of the terminology can be a lot of fun and people chuckle over it. So the baby pigeons uh, are going to be first squab, and then about four weeks of age, you're going to pull them from the mother. And actually, the mother and father both care for the pigeons. And at that point, they're referred to as squeakers. And that is a technical term because the pigeons squeakers. make kind of a squeaky sound. Instead of cooing, they'll squeak. And so you pull the, the squeakers away, and they're moved to a weaning, a weaning loft, W-E-A-N, and I get weaning where they kind of learn to care for themselves, to eat and drink and become adults, if you will. At that point, then, they're going to take the squeakers and put them in these things called mobile lofts. And I like to call them pigeon RVs. So the mobile loft is basically, it's, it's this, it looks like an RV. It's a big wooden box, if you will, on top of like a truck chassis with leaf suspension. And it's broken into three compartments. One of those compartments, you store food and supplies. And then there's two others that are organized uh, into nest boxes, if you will, for the pigeons to actually live in. We're like pigeon apartments, little pigeon, you know, individual little pigeon nooks 
And this allows you for, for some breeding, so you have the mates, as I mentioned, as a homing incentive. You can also use the boxes to segregate uh, the male and female pigeons. And the lofts also have a large water tank in the back and, as I said, food supplies. That's what you train the pigeons to return to, is that mobile loft. That's what you're going to want them to understand, that that's where food is, that's where your mate is. So that's, that's the home, if you will, for the pigeon. So how the pigeons are then taken from the loft and delivered into the field for use, they're first segregated as much as possible by sex. And the concern is if you put a boy and girl pigeon together, they might not want to home. They might want to go off and make more little pigeons. So the Army said, we can't have any, no fraternization. So the, they actually try to segregate the birds by sex. So the cockbirds, the males, they will actually paint the tails blue or mark them with blue. And the female or hens are marked with red, not quite the pink and blue we think of today with boys and girls. They actually do stamp uh, the, pro- the fifth or sixth primary flight feathers on the right wings of all pigeons with the letters U.S. So we actually do mark the birds with black ink stamps, U.S., and a number and their loft information. And that's in the case if the bird goes to the wrong loft, we can say, okay, you know, bad job, you didn't home correctly, but you homed and get them back to the correct loft. So once segregated by sex, the pigeons are then divided into these lots. So you have 12 birds for every field station in the trenches. Those are then divided into three sets of four, because you could put four pigeons in a single wicker backpack-type basket. Uh, These would then be delivered typically by motorcycle out to the front lines, to the trenches, and each one of these backpacks would have uh, message blanks, so the blank piece of paper to write on, uh, carbon copy sheets so you can make copies of the original message, pencils, a small supply of food, the actual message tubes that would be attached to the pigeon's legs, a uh, series of instructions, if you don't know what you're doing, here's how to use them, and a gas-proof cover. And I segue for one second, poison gas is going to kill pigeons just as it will kill human beings or horses. The way that they developed a gas mask, if you will, for pigeons was it was literally a bag. It, it's the equivalent of taking the pigeon container and putting it in a trash bag. And you could do that for about an hour or two, and there'd be enough oxygen in there for the pigeons. But if you didn't, of course, let the pigeons out eventually, they would asphyxiate from lack of oxygen. But that was the gas bag, or that was the gas mask for pigeons, and it actually did work. As absurd, as absurdly simple as it is, it was effective. And so all that would be issued to the front. Uh, the, the soldiers were told, uh, you do not feed the pigeons. Do not feed them until 24 hours after they were away from the loft. Again, hunger is an incentive to home. Uh, they're not trying to be cruel to the birds, but that's you, you, if you if you feed them, the bird might not want to go home. You say, "Well, hey, I got a I got a crate here, right? These guys are feeding me all the time. Why do I need to go home?" The British Army had a problem of soldiers making pets out of homing pigeons, mm-hmm. so we were very strict with. They're not. Remember, they're not. They're 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 birds, but these are not your pets <laughs> as much as you might want them to be. Uh, so that's what they were told, and you, they could soldiers could only give the food provided. Some soldiers might say, "Hey, have some of my rations, have some of my hardtack." They found that wasn't good for the pigeons either. Please don't do that. After 48 hours, if the if they haven't had to use the pigeons yet to send messages, the soldiers were told release the birds so they can fly back. If that was the case, they would just put a message on the pigeon that would say something like test or you know, something simple, but basically indicating that we didn't need the bird, but we're just letting him home back. The birds would come back to the loft. Uh, they would get their companionship. They would get a good meal, rest, and then they would basically be reissued out to the field again. The messages themselves, though, where are they attached to the pigeon? 
So the, the pigeons are all banded. They all have a little aluminum identification band that's applied within, I think, the first week of birth before the foot grows so big that you can't squeeze the band on. Uh, the band will have a two-digit number indicating the year the bird's born. If it is a bird registered with, say, the American Racing Pigeon Union, you'll see the letters AU. And then there's a number, and that number indicates uh, who that band was assigned to. So it'll tell you who was the person to actually raise that pigeon. If it's a U.S. Army bred pigeon, instead of AU, it'll have U.S. The messages are in these little aluminum capsules that are extremely lightweight. Uh, and how it, will, it has a set of two prongs on it, and you bend the prongs around the pigeon's leg, always opposite the banded leg. Okay. Because there was concern if you put it on the banded leg, either the, they won't position the capsule correctly, or it will constrict the blood flow to the leg and, and injure the pigeon. There also was a concern the pigeon capsule had to be attached so that the the part that actually opened, which was just like a sleeve, it would, the one part would slip inside the other, when you put the pigeon capsule, the sleeve part would face forward. If you faced it backwards, you ran the risk that gravity will actually cause it to fall out. That did happen on some occasions. So they, the message, the pigeon may have returned to loft, but the part of the capsule holding the little tissue paper message was lost. How frequently were pigeons used to deliver messages? So the key thing to remember with pigeons is this is kind of communication of last resort. So if you don't have a human runner to relay your message or you're out of, say, wired communication or there's, there's no other way to get a message out, that's when you would use your pigeon, when all other options have failed. With that being said, they're used a lot more frequently than people would realize, and that's typically because of if soldiers are engaged in heavy combat, they don't have radio communication at that time. So they're not able to, say, bring a wireless means of communication forward with them and they might not be able to run a communication cable with them either, or if they have, it's been broken. Because of the, the sheer volume of our enemy artillery fire in a lot of these battles. So pigeons are used more frequently than one would realize. Uh, and with that being said, the pigeons are very effective. They're about 95% effective if you use pigeons. Uh, most people would tend to think, ah, it's, you know, this is crazy, you're trusting your life to a little bird that might take a crap on my head or something, but in reality, the pigeons actually are very reliable. And the other thing is that they're fairly secure. There are instances where we capture German homing pigeons because they home to the wrong side. There are invariably are instances where perhaps American pigeons home to German lofts, but those are few and far between. And so that's, so I can't give exact numbers as to well, how often or how many times were the pigeons used, but they were used with some frequency. And, in fact, uh, General, then Colonel George Catlett Marshall, in fact, in his World War I memoir published after his death, he mentioned several times the use of pigeons, and he found them to be a very effective means uh, to communicate sometimes and just give them quick updates, you know, send a pigeon, say, every hour on how a battle's developing. Uh, he found them to be very reliable in that sense, to give them a good picture of what's happening at the front. When did the pigeon service make its battlefield debut? This is a fun one because every, ever so often we have really good data. It's really as early as January 1918. Uh, we're going to send some Americans over to a French stationary pigeon loft. So instead of the mobile loft on wheels, the stationary loft is just as it sounds. It's just a building that houses pigeons. And uh, in, on, I think it's January 30th, 1918, Americans take over this French loft. The first Actual actual use of pigeons in combat occurs on March 17th, 1918, when a pigeon named Gunpowder, 
and he was actually bred by Herman Moser of Aurora, Illinois, who will deliver the very first American message from the trenches to the headquarters of the 26th Division. And a second pigeon followed Gunpowder. That was a bird named Pretty Baby, and that was carrying a carbon copy of Gunpowder's message in case Gunpowder failed to deliver. So it was actually a civilian pigeon. A civilian pigeon volunteer was the first pigeon to deliver a message. That's how the American Pigeon Service enters the war. Uh, by the end of April of 1918, we actually are, at that point, we have about 10 mobile lofts, a stationary loft, and over 650 pigeons in the front lines, uh, actually serving American troops. Fighting, in terms of big fighting, it's uh, the fighting at Chateau Terry in June and July of 1918. We're going to move eight mobile lofts to the front lines, and that's when the pigeons, we're going to suffer our first pigeon combat deaths as well as some of the first really heavy fighting for the American Expeditionary Forces. In terms of rough numbers for our listeners, from August 29th to September 11th, Mobile Loft Number 9 will operate at the front by Chateau Terry. It will receive 78 important messages and 148 test messages from its 72 pigeons, but none of them fail to return home, so they suffer no losses. I think you've already answered this question, but how would you rate the overall effectiveness of the pigeon service in World War I? As folks probably can tell, I'm a big fan of them, and they were very effective. Uh, so about, uh, in some instances, over 95% success rate. The official histories tend to lower it. They say about 90% success rates, uh, but much lower loss rates of birds when you have trained personnel who really know what they're doing with the pigeons. Almost every American uh, leader who works with pigeons or has pigeon communication comes away a believer in them and comes away as a supporter of the use of pigeons. We hear about other uh, animals in the war. Uh, were there any heroic pigeons? Oh, just a few. <laughs> the most famous of all we have here on display at the Smithsonian, it's a pigeon named Cherami. However, I'm not going to necessarily share Cherami's story because people can look up Cherami. Instead, I'm going to talk about a pigeon with a great name, the Mocker. Uh, the, the Mocker was a, a U.S. bird. It was acquired by Carney in the United States. And on September 12, 1918, during the fighting at San Miel, uh, the Mocker carried a message uh, back to American forces requesting artillery support. And that artillery support managed to silence a large number of German guns that were impeding the American advance. In the course of carrying that message, however, Mocker was actually hit by shrapnel and lost complete use of his right eye, so he was blinded uh, thereafter. Yet he continued to be used in the fighting at San Miel and in the Meuse-Argonne Offensive and he was wounded two more times before the war ended. The remarkable thing about Mocker, he died in 1937. He was 20 years old when he died at Fort, Mon at Fort Monmouth, New Jersey, and he was stuffed and preserved by the United States Army, and I believe he's in storage over at the Aberdeen Proving Grounds, in fact. So I, I welcome everyone to look up a photo of the Mocker. You can find him. He's missing his right eye, but a feathered hero of World War I. What happens to the pigeon service after the war ends? So with the armistice on November 11th, the pigeon service ceases all breeding. So unfortunately, all the male, the, the boy and girl pigeons are told no more, no more kids, and they're separated. Uh, but the army decides, you know, hey, this worked out. You know, we have to remember they created this literally from nothing in a year, and they went, this has been a great success for us. So the Signal Corps does two things. They say, let's take all these hero pigeons, Jeremy, the Mocker, and others. Let's send them home and use them to tell the story to the American people about, look at these little heroes, these little feathered heroes. And 
In the case of Cherami and the Mocker and others, they decided when the birds die, let's have them stuffed and preserved to go into museums. Uh, one of the craziest things is they actually create a, a veteran's home loft, uh, allegedly ordered by General Pershing, to be built and exhibited in Potomac Park here in Washington, D.C., and they gave it the title, the Hall of Honor of the American Pigeon Service. And these honored birds uh, got a full pension in feed. Uh, they were not required to work, but they did have to perform daily drill flights for the American people to watch them flying around. And that was only weather permitting. All the remaining pigeons, they auctioned over 10,000 of them off in France. They did not destroy the pigeons. They saved them. And not only were French civilians allowed to purchase the pigeons, they also allowed American soldiers to auction, to put in bids and buy some of these former military homing pigeons. And they were brought back to the United States for guys for their own personal breeding loft. So that actually the bloodlines of some of these veterans are still flying here in the United States generation, many, many generations later. The remaining pigeons the Army decided to keep as the best of the best for breeding and to build the future generations were mostly sent to Camp Alfred Vale, New Jersey. This later became Fort Monmouth for the Signal Corps Pigeon Breeding and Training Section. And so it's not a big effort, but in the 1920s and the 1930s, the homing pigeons remain. And during World War II, the homing pigeons are also used in both the Pacific and Europe. And there, they're, again, achieving success rates of 95 to 99% and flying hundreds of miles as opposed maybe to 10 to 20 miles as they did in World War I. That's pretty impressive. It's really impressive. The, the pigeons, the Army used to, the Army retained the pigeon service until about 1957, uh, at which point they sold off the last of the pigeons. We, we said, well, we have radio communications, satellites are beginning to develop. So we're never going to need pigeons again. Or do we? Which begs the interesting question, what about an electronic warfare? Can you jam a pigeon? Can you hack a pigeon? I'm not going to say, could you waterboard a pigeon? Please don't, if anyone's wondering. Uh, a pigeon's, in a way, a kind of secure means to send a message. Potentially, as they were in World War One and Two, a pigeon might serve as a last a last means of communication. Because who's to say you couldn't take a memory card, of photographs or documents or recordings, encrypt it, slip it on the back of a pigeon, and that pigeon could easily home 100 miles in a day, maybe 1,000. It's not going to give off any electromagnetic radiation. You're not going to detect it on satellite. You're not going to be able to necessarily shoot it down. And you're probably not even going to think about a pigeon as a means to secretly deliver or covertly deliver messages. Pigeons could do that today. And if anything, as I mentioned, they're even better now physically than they ever were in the previous wars. Are there any efforts to revive a pigeon service? I think I'm a one-man force in that, in that regard to recommend reestablishing a, pardon the word, the pun, a fledgling uh, pigeon service again. But it's not a, as crazy an idea when one considers that the French army to this day still has a tiny pigeon detachment, specifically in the event of a war where, say, by electromagnetic pulse or other means, communica electronic communications are knocked out. They still maintain a small pigeon force. And there's some reports that the Chinese People Liberation, People's Liberation Army has a pigeon force as well, and that they maintain this, again, for potential communication usage in time of war. I don't think it would be that expensive uh, for the United States military to experiment with modern, using pigeons for modern communication purposes. And certainly the American Racing Pigeon Union and other civilian pigeon groups 
are they're very patriotic folks, men and women, and they'd be more than willing to work with the U.S. military to even do experiments today and see if there's still some viability in military-owning pigeons. Because I guess communication technology today is probably just as vulnerable as it was on those World War I battlefields. More advanced, but still vulnerable. Absolutely. And it never hurts to have more than one option at your, at your availability in the time of war. Well, thank you very much, Dr. Blazich, for talking with us today. We really appreciate it. My pleasure. Thank you for having me. Thank you for listening. If you have any questions, suggestions, or comments, please contact Amanda Williams at amanda.williams at norfolk.gov.